Well, we have reached our final week of preaching the service, why we do what we do on Sunday mornings. I hope this series has been helpful for you. This is one of those series that every church member needs to hear, consider, and engage with. I would like to have preached it sooner in our church life, but frankly, I don't think I could have preached it much sooner. I don't think I had this understanding, this perspective. Of course, you can find both our whole services and the sermons themselves on our refreshed YouTube page that Cass is uh, keeping up very well. So any sermon from this series specifically that you've missed, I do hope that you will go back and watch it because in many ways, this is training for church membership. In fact, we just wrapped up our church membership class this morning and the assi- one of the assignments is to, to watch all of these services, uh, all of these sermons at least, if you haven't had a chance to see them. So these are, are, are foundational in the way we think about what we do every time we gather here. In our first week, we considered what worship does. We glorify God by remembering, rehearsing, and anticipating or living into his story. In the second week, I preached about preaching. Why do we preach the way that we preach? Why do we preach at all, even? We preach the scriptures in our worship services to exalt Christ, to inspire the saints, and to instruct the saints. Preaching reaches our hearts and minds, moving us to both the right worship and right living. We give preeminence to God's word in the service because God is himself preeminent. What began with preaching or proclaiming the gospel, our salvation, like continues as the gospel is preached to our hearts. Next, I preached about singing. We don't just sing because that's what churches do, because we like music or because it's some sort of self-expression. God commands his people to sing over and over again in the scriptures. We notice scripturally congregational singing seems to have three moves. An upward move where together we honor and glorify and exalt God. Congregational singing has an, a horizontal move where we sing to each other. In fact, the scriptures teach that we are to be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That we're not only singing to God, but we're singing to each other. Your neighbor needs to hear your voice. And we sing to ourselves. We sing to move truth from our heads to our hearts to add our voice to the chorus of, tra- chorus of praise rising to our triune God. Last week, I preached on the Lord's Supper. We observe the Eucharist weekly because here we remember and proclaim the gospel. Here we meet with Jesus himself and the bread and juice, and here we cultivate unity, both with the saints in this church and with saints across time and space. Jesus is really, truly, spiritually present, offering his body, take and eat, for the nourishment of our souls. We neglect the Lord's table to our great spiritual detriment. So what else do we do? Those are the big things, really, preaching, observing the supper, singing. But there are other things that happen in these services. In fact, some of these very things are the things that are most foreign to people, most surprising, and prompt the most questions. Other things happen in the service, and we must approach them with understanding, and intentionality, thinking to theologically understand what's happening when we do them and why it is we do them. This morning we'll think about them, considering why these elements are significant and thus why we do them, how they fit in with our understanding of 
what happens here on Sunday mornings when we gather for service. Consider this morning and the rest of this series, training for church membership, learning to give and receive all you are intended to give and receive in Christian worship. Let's just work through each element this morning, completing our training in corporate worship 101. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. We just have one verse that will frame the bulk of our time, and then towards the end of the sermon, we'll land the plane at another passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Let all things be done for building up. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This entire sermon is in some ways a reflection and application of that one verse. What are those all things that are done? And how do those things build up? What are the things that we do when we come together? And how do those things build up? Meaning, what are they for? We'll consider these elements if you're taking notes. Our call to worship. We'll think about our confession of sin, assurance of pardon. We'll think about why we confess creeds. We'll think about why we give, why there's a time for offering. We'll think a little bit about why we do announcements and why we pray. So we're hitting all the loose ends this morning. We're tying this whole thing together to finish our training in corporate worship 101. Let's begin with the first thing we do, our call to worship. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. In recent weeks, we've used a psalm to create a, a sort of reader response situation. We want us to see that we gather here because we've been invited. God calls to us and we respond in faith and worship. Something begins anew Every time we gather in worship, we rehearse the story of God. It's a foundational point that we've come back to and back to and back to. In worship, we remember the story of God and we rehearse the story of God. In a sense, the service begins like the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Into nothing, God spoke and worlds were created. The world itself is a response to God's word. The world itself is a form of worship. We respond to a call to join this world in worship when we began each service with a call to worship. The word goes forth and we respond. When does the corporate worship of God's people begin? Is it the first strum of a guitar? Not necessarily. It's here when we respond to the call. Where do we get our minds right? Where do we enter into this space to be present with our heads and hearts and bodies here among these people at this time and space? Here at the call to worship. Where is the line of demarcation from that which was not to that which is? Here the call to worship. The last few weeks, as I said a moment ago, we've used an adaptation of a psalm to create a call and response. The word calls us and we respond. Often we say, confess together, blessed be this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we respond in worship and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. The beginning of the service rehearses creation. It invites us into a time 
of worship. If the beginning of the service, this call to worship is a response to the word of God, it's a rehearsal of creation, then the end of the service, the doxology that we sing every week, praise God from whom all blessings flow, is a rehearsal of where it ends. If the beginning of the service is a rehearsal of creation, the end of the service is a rehearsal of consummation. This is where the story is going, to the eternal worship of our triune God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We sing the doxology as we leave because that's what we'll be singing forevermore. We'll be praising the Lord together as one people. And it's from this place and posture of worship we go out into the world to live out our calling, to be who God's called us to be in the everyday stuff of life. Our weeks began as rehearsing God's story. In our call to worship, we come and think about the God who calls us together, the God who makes something out of nothing, the God who makes worlds out of words, the God who is not caused by anything but is himself the cause of all things. We respond to his word, we gather in worship, and we rehearse this whole story, this story that ends with the praise of the triune God resounding among the nations. Our call to worship is a call to begin. The shape of the service is informed by the story of the Bible. The shape of the service is informed by the story of the Bible. This is foundational. If you're taking notes, write this down. The storyline of scripture frames our worship service. The storyline of scripture frames our worship service. This is why we begin with a call to worship. Second, we have often a time of confessing our sins together and a time where we're together assured of our pardon. We often do this, we always do this between the second and third song. So we, we have a call to worship, we sing to the Lord, and then there's a time where we do different things. Very often we confess our sins. Together we pray a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, an old Anglican prayer book, which guides personal and corporate worship. Many Christian traditions have included some time during the liturgy for penitence and reflection and confession. I really love the prayer that we use, and we use this one because of its thoroughness, its honesty, and its beauty. Almighty God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we've not done. We've not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. If call to worship rehearses creation, then confession rehearses the fall. We acknowledge the reality of sin in our hearts, and in the world. We need to remind ourselves of these things. We need to be reminded of sin's presence and veracity and power so we can do battle with it, so we can remind ourselves and the devil that we defeat sin through the victory of Christ. In the Psalms, that Old Testament hymn book, David comes before God in worship, bringing the whole range of human emotions before the Lord including contrition and sadness, seeking forgiveness. We should move to embrace these other emotions in our service. We don't put on happy faces when we come. We wear the faces we've already got 
and we bring them before the Lord in worship. Because masks don't work on God. The all-knowing Lord sees our hearts. He sees our Sunday morning hearts. He sees our Saturday night hearts. And he sees our Monday morning hearts. We hide not from his penetrating gaze. In response, and we lay ourselves bare. We come before God, not as we wish we were, but as we really are. We confess to God together how far short we've fallen. We come before God with our sin and mess, and we don't hide it when we gather together. We come before God then humbly, but we come before God confidently because through Jesus, God has made a way for us to know him, for us to draw near with our unvarnished, unfiltered selves. We face our sin and there we also find God's mercy. We receive not lashings of wrath, but the embrace of grace. After this confession of sin, I remind you this. He has forgiven you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're free to turn from the darkness and walk in the light. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. That sin you do battle with has not the last word in your story. Whom the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. When we come into this time of confession and assurance of pardon, we're embracing and we're rehearsing the story of the fall in the gospel. Now, other weeks, we don't confess our sins. Other weeks, we confess the content of the faith that we've received together. By together, confessing ecumenical creeds, Christian creeds, foundational creeds that the church has confessed. For a couple of years in our corporate worship, we have confessed the Apostles' Creed. This morning and a couple mornings ago, we have recently begun confessing the Nicene Creed, a quick word on the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed was not necessarily written by the apostles, but it is perhaps the oldest Christian statement of faith. It sets forth Christian doctrine, as one leader has said, in sublime simplicity, in unsurpassable brevity, in beautiful order, and with liturgical solemnity meaning just worshipfully. It is a summary of core biblical doctrines compiled together for the education and instruction of the saints. Oftentimes when you're reading primary sources of early Christian thinkers, they'll refer to the Apostles' Creed as the Children's Creed. Christian parents would use this Children's Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments to teach their children about God, His moral commands, and the hope of the gospel. Not only do we confess, as many have called, the Children's Creed, but we confess the Nicene Creed. It's a creed that comes a little bit later. It's a statement of the Orthodox, the shared or Catholic faith, written to combat heresy, wrong doctrine, and establish within the church and make clear what the Bible teaches about God. Creedal authority comes from the word's authority. We confess these creeds because they are true and right summaries of the living, inerrant, infallible word of God. 
The Nicene Creed then focuses a bit more on biblical understanding of what we mean when we confess that Jesus is fully God and fully man. God from God, light from light. What it means that God is one nature and three persons. Don't tune out here. I know it's tempting. If worship remembers, rehearses, and anticipates the story of God, we need to know this God we worship. We need to remember the point of the story. Don't lose the plot. So why creeds? Why introduce them, especially in a tradition amongst the people where it may seem foreign? Four reasons. Four quick reasons. First, to build up the saints in the knowledge of God. To build up the saints in the knowledge of God. Simply put, we recite these creeds to instruct the people of God. Adults and children alike. We recite them before the kids go off to, to, to res kids where they receive teaching that is interactive, that they can engage with for 35, 40 minutes. So these children are hearing these things, they're reciting these things, hopefully they're internalizing these things. If the service is intended to build up the believer while being accessible to those outside the faith, this is a great way to accomplish those goals. Here's a second reason we confess the creeds. To major on the majors. <laughs> to major on the majors. Here's what I mean. We want to emphasize our most important doctrines. Let's get the foundation right. Now, that is not to say other doctrines aren't important. That's not to say other doctrines don't matter. Not at all. It's simply building the foundation on that which can hold it. These are the things which Paul says are of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died, was buried, and rose from the dead according to scriptures. Confessing these creeds is frankly an attempt to provide a foundation, a spiritual, theological, and intellectual foundation in a day and age where the church can seem so rootless. Many evangelical churches have raised a generation to know how to talk about hot button cultural issues, but have no clue how to talk about the Trinity. Why do many walk away? I think there's several answers to that question. But I think in many cases, we haven't built a strong foundation on our most important doctrines. I mentioned that the Apostles' Creed throughout church history is often called the Children's Creed. And I, I think our kids, and maybe I'm just a naive young parent, you can write me off if you'd like, I, I think our kids can handle a lot. I think they soak up more than we think they do. If a kindergartner can memorize the Pledge of Allegiance, then surely they can memorize the Children's Creed. Surely they can memorize and learn who they are in Christ. We recite these creeds to major on the major's third. We recite these creeds to pass on that which we have received. Brother, sister, we are not the first Christians ever. We are daughters and sons of an incredible family. And we are spiritual mothers and fathers who are passing this faith on to those who follow us. We are heirs of a vibrant, living faith, an historic faith, Grounded in something that really happened. Jesus of Nazareth 
really lived. He really died. He really rose again from the dead. We are a people with a history. Our faith is not up in the clouds alone. Our faith has walked this earth. Our faith has took on flesh and blood. We recite the creeds to pass on the beauty of what we have received. We want to emphasize the way Christianity is unique more than we want to emphasize the way our church is unique from that church over there. This is a missiological decision. Like we want to reach people who are not Christians, teach them to be Christians, and walk them through the Christian life. We aren't competing with the church down the street. We're competing with the devil. A fourth reason. I could go on, you know, but I'll just stick with four. A fourth reason we recite the creeds is to participate in worship so that your voice joins the voices of saints who share this confession in this room and across time. You are adding your voice to a great company of voices. The same way the Lord loves when you sing, the Lord loves when your voice confesses these biblical truths. This is an opportunity in our worship service to remind us that we are not consumers. This is an opportunity in our worship service to remind us that we are contributors. We are giving our voice and our confession to God. It is pleasing for the Lord to hear these things. Okay, those are the very theological things. Remember 1 Corinthians, that all things be done for building up. We're considering all the things we do and why. This is not as theological on its surface, but we give. I always say, res kids, you are dismissed, and they take off up the aisles. And then the ushers come forward to receive the morning tithes and offering. Now, most people give online. But we've kept this time in the worship service of giving, both as an opportunity to give for those who wish, and a reminder that giving financially is worship. We remember when that happens, that what we do out there is not without consequence. That God desires our worship in here and out there. I could do a whole sermon on tithing, but that's not the point right now. Perhaps, though, no one vies for your affection, devotion, and attention, and dare I say worship, more than money. The scriptures are clear. You cannot serve God and money. In the spirit of Father's Day, one of the most important things my dad has taught me, and there are countless, is that money is just money. You can't let it rule your life. You can't let it be the thing that drives you and compels you. We give to the church. We keep that in our worship time because even that is sacred. All we have is a gift. We have nothing that God himself has not given us. Oh, I could preach a sermon on this, but I will simply say that God has always called his people to give sacrificially in worship. One more practical thing, we do announcements. I usually just passively mention a few things before I start preaching because everyone's always here because Christians are usually quite late for service. And so I, I wait until the, the, the time for the sermon where I can give the announcements because it's going to have the most uh, success. It may seem silly, but it's important. It's a part of our liturgy because the church is a community and it's important to know what's happening in the community and make every effort to be part of it. Our community... I wish I could just, I want to bring this point home. Our community is as good as we make it. 
<laughs> our community is as good as we make it. If everyone were as committed to our community as you, what kind of community would we be? If everyone were as committed to our community in prayer, attendance, like showing up, generosity, if everyone were as your level of commitment were grafted onto our whole membership role, what would this theater and this community look like? Finally, we'll close on a more obviously spiritual note. We pray. We pray at 10.30 before the service begins with our volunteers. Uh, Dad and a couple others this morning, Dad and Jeremiah came up, have begun praying for Nick and I every Sunday around 10.45 in the study to prepare our hearts for the service. If you want to be a part of that, talk to Dad. Ted Tanzi is watching. He'll be back soon when he gets home from vacation. Or just come on up. The more the merrier. Since getting back in this space, it's been imperative that we commit ourselves to prayer. Everything that we do not do with prayer, we do in the flesh. Everything we do in the flesh is of little to no use, of no use in the kingdom of God. In the service, I pray a relatively lengthy prayer at the end of every sermon. Not so much as a transition, but as a way to ask God to take everything that I've just preached from his word and move in power and grace among us. We'll look at other opportunities to add corporate prayers in that spot where we have the Confession of Sin, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, we're going to introduce some different prayers, whether it's prayers for our city, prayers for other churches, prayers for mission partners, things like that. We're going to introduce that in there. Um, as Cass and I have had time to, to, to look at what we're doing uh, on a week-to-week basis. Again, I could do a whole sermon on prayer, but I'm not going to do that. Like, corporate prayer is important. It's powerful. It does something. The effectual fervent prayer, James teaches, of a righteous man availeth much. Prayer is a great way to anticipate the story of God, to ask him to move in our hearts, in our families, in our church, in our communities, in our state, and in our world. We pray, we give, we confess the creeds, we confess our sins, we have a call to worship, we give announcements. You might notice something about all of these things. None of it is spectacular. I want to make a broader point from Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn there, please. Acts 2, 42 through 47. I'm just going to read this and offer some closing reflections as we wind out this series um, of, in the season of our church's life. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Um, perhaps you've heard the old truism that God works in mysterious ways. I've heard other folks say something like God works in 
extraordinary ways. I suppose it's true. But I want to make one observation. Usually God works in ordinary ways. Usually God works in ordinary ways. Everything we've said, this whole series, preaching, singing, praying, confessing, reciting, eating, drinking. You don't have to have a a high school degree to do these things. You just do them. Sing, pray, confess, preach, eat, drink, listen, think. These are simple means of grace. It's kind of like we see in Acts chapter 2. And worship team, you guys can come on up. What do we see in Acts chapter 2? We see teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, going to the temple, and praying. If you're taking notes, don't miss this idea. When God's people commit themselves to simple, ordinary means of grace, they grow. When God's people commit themselves to simple, ordinary means of grace, they grow. You don't need in your life to figure out how to get more momentum when you walk with Jesus. You need to learn to walk with Jesus when there is no momentum. (laughs) You don't need to muster up enough emotion to walk with Jesus. You need to learn to walk with Jesus when you don't have any real emotions about it. Like going to church, for instance, is a lot like eating. Every meal is not the best meal. Every meal is not your favorite meal. Every dish is not your favorite dish. But every one of those meals and every dish in those meals nourishes you. Every meal sustains you. You miss a few of those meals and you feel it. I got to have a point of pastoral honesty here. Our services are not necessarily designed to quickly draw the biggest crowd possible because that's not our goal. Our services are designed with particular attention to scripture, with an attention to Christian past, with an openness to other Christian traditions so that we can get all we can get to grow as deep as we can grow in our walk with God. These services are not designed to make us academics. They are designed to make us Christians. These services aren't designed to give us that one hit of spiritual adrenaline. They are designed to shape us over decades. When we show up with faith and a willingness to be present. And I believe that as we do these simple things, eat, pray, drink, confess, listen, think, sing, over and over again that we are, we are connected to God. We are receiving these means of grace. As we do these simple things with love and with faith and in hope, I believe God moves in our hearts and lives powerfully. I said I had a little Father's Day nugget at the end. A lot of pastors joke, like Mother's Day, you know, it's like mothers are the greatest, they're God's gift to the world, and the fathers, buck up! You know, we often have that joke. And we want to avoid, like, just flattering folks and just criticizing folks. We want to honor folks. 
So we honor our mothers and we honor our fathers on this Father's Day. But one of the ways we honor our fathers this morning is by, by giving just a subtle little challenge. Fathers, you don't have to be superheroes. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to lead a group. You just got to be a Christian. You got to follow Jesus. You don't have to do the extraordinary things. Fathers, if we would commit ourselves to the ordinary things, how might God move in our families? I believe our families will see what we prioritize. They'll see what we care about. We don't have to tell them. They'll see it. They'll notice it. My challenge to you fathers is to put that church at the top of the list. Because here we receive God's grace. Not only here, certainly. We receive God's grace every time we pray, come to him and the word. But fathers, may we put the church at the top of our list because through these ordinary things, God shapes us for an ordinary life of obedience. And ordinary lives of obedience receive extraordinary glory. Now you know why we do the things we do on Sunday mornings. Psalm 122, verse one. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning with hope. Hope that we can live a Christian life Hope that we can do what you've called us to do. Hope that we can be the sort of church you've called us to be because you have given us ordinary means of grace. You have given us a feast of food in your word and you have called us to come. Lord, you meet us in prayer. You meet us in the word. You meet us at your table. You give us the grace we need to face each day. You give us the strength we need to keep going. And you give us the confidence to know that it matters. Lord, we reflect on this series as a whole. And I pray that it will lead in our church to a, a, a whole new level of intentionality about every little thing we do. From the call to worship, to the song, to confessing our sins together, to confessing the creeds, to praying together, to making announcements, to receiving tithes and offerings, to preaching your word, to coming to the Lord's table, to singing the doxology as we rehearse creation and the call to worship, and as we look ahead to the consummation and end of all things, as we praise you in the doxology. I pray that as we remember, rehearse, and anticipate this story, that we together would learn to play our role in this great drama, this great drama of your glory being made known to the nations. And I pray that you would use every bit of us to see your gospel go throughout our city, throughout our land, and to the nations. 
Father, may our confession every Sunday morning be, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.